one way out into this wilderness to find. Leaving our country, kindred, our father's houses. For what? For the kingdom of God. Let us pray. this family. Ghostface, I want to be in the sequel. I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane? Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. I am the eater of wolves and of children. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another spooky installment of the greatest October in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 286, The Witch. Quite possibly one of my favorite Brian Bell birthday movies. <laughs> yeah, this was a movie that we saw twice. That's what I, I thought that. I was going to bring that up. I'm like, I'm pretty sure we saw this in the theater twice. Yeah, I think the first time we saw it, we didn't really know what it was. We just heard it was cool. True. And then ended up going back with more friends after realizing it was awesome. I do miss the days of going out, going to the food court or whatever before a movie, making a whole night of it. It's just not quite the same. Yeah. (laughs) Well, 
it was headed in that direction long before Definitely. the pandemic even. I think that dream died a long time ago. Yeah. when f- Fun nights. <laughs> r- when restaurants that we went to started not being there anymore. We're, of course, talking about the 2015 film The Witch, which debuted at Sundance in 2015. It actually had a wide release from May 24 in 2016. That's when we would have seen it. But before we do, let's remind our listeners to follow the show on Twitter, at Greatest Pod, and make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or wherever you find us, and give us a rating and review if you get a chance on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like a free sticker, hit us up on Twitter, and we will get that out to you. And finally, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983 and Matt Crosby. So let's jump into it. The Witch. Written and directed by Robert Eggers, his feature directorial debut. Had a small budget of $4 million. The box office came in at $40.4 million. Set in the 1630s, the witch follows a Puritan family who encounter forces of evil in the woods beyond their New England farm. And despite a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, I would describe the reaction to the witch as pretty divisive sort of like hereditary in that way maybe even more so yeah but yes i think that it's a recurring theme with the a24 horror films maybe none more so than it comes at night oh yeah a film that was marketed one way and then when you saw it it really didn't live up to that marketing but the witch is right there as well because when a film is marketed as terrifying and bone-chilling and there's all kinds of quotes from critics and Stephen King and whoever, I do think that you're setting the audience up with certain expectations and you can't really control what those expectations are because each person is going to formulate their own idea based on what they're hearing. Totally. And to a certain segment of the audience who has grown accustomed to jump scares and a certain style of horror film, they are potentially going to be bored with something like The Witch, and they're not going to look any deeper and really vibe with it and get into it and appreciate the atmosphere and the building of dread and all that stuff. It's just not going to work the same way. Yeah, it is totally for me. So when I walk away from this stuff, it's more effective on me in terms of like creeping me out but i guess for some people it's just like a complete bore yeah audiences polled by cinema score gave the film an average grade of c minus and other audience scoring methods had it down around 50 percent in approval ratings so yes there was definitely a divide between critics and audiences like a lot of a24 films though amongst the certain online cinephile sect it's much more popular than probably the general public now i like this director this robert eggers he definitely has a unique style i would say all of his movies are definitely different but there's sort of some common themes there and they all have this sort of like folk lore to them yeah like that's like a big part of it you feel like for a directorial debut this is a craftsman this feels well done Yeah, pretty much everything from top to bottom in the film is painstakingly time period accurate, all the way down to the stylized title with the 
capital V, capital V, I-T-C-H rather than capital W. It's actually how the word was written in the story's period because the letter oh, wow. W was not in common use at the time. I just thought it was one of those things like the band Churches with a V. <laughs> it's also subtitled A New England Folktale. Yeah. And in comparison to the jump scare machines of the era, it is much more slower paced, atmospheric, certainly patient as far as a story. It's a story dealing with America's first witch hysteria set 62 years before the infamous Salem witch trials. Oh, yeah. What this story presupposes is maybe in the Crucible they were wrong? I think that this movie, when you pull back from it and you really examine all the different pieces and the characters and the story itself, is its own microcosm of the Salem witch trials all done within one family. Yes. And also the story of early colonial New England in general. You have to remember, these people were coming to America for the same reason that William gets his family kicked out of the settlement. There's this religious dispute and the formation of new religious sects and breaking off and doing their own thing. And it's all very contained in just this one family is sort of the story of this time period which would come to a horrifying crescendo during the Salem Witch Trials. Eggers had lived in New Hampshire and had frequently visited the early colonial settlements as a child. He was inspired to write the film by his fascination with witches. He also became obsessed with authenticity. The production team worked extensively with British and American museums as well as consulting experts on 17th century British agriculture. Eggers wanted the set constructed to be as historically accurate as possible and therefore brought in a thatcher and a carpenter from Virginia and Massachusetts, respectively, who had the proper experience building in the style of the period. Wow. It's a lot of detail for a, what was it, $4 million budget? Yeah. He had to settle for filming it in Canada, though, because there was no available tax credit in the area. Oh, there you go where he wanted to film, so they chose a a very remote location in Ontario. Miles and miles from anywhere. The nearest town was minuscule. It was not even a town. Oh, wow. The casting took place in England, as Eggers wanted authentic accents to represent a family newly arrived in Plymouth. According to cinematographer Jaron Blaschk, the film was shot mostly with available and natural light, which does make it kind of hard to see sometimes definitely i was adjusting the brightness on my television a little bit only because i didn't want to miss any details in case something crucial happened that i might miss totally most of the film's dialogue and story come from writings of the time this is something that is noted at the end of the film yeah folk tales fairy tales and written accounts of historical witchcraft including journals diaries and court records And he molded them all together to tell us this story. Yeah, pretty cool backstory. The Year of Our Lord, 1630, New England. What went we out into this wilderness to find? leaving our country, 
kindred. Our father's houses. We travailed a vast ocean. For what? For what? We must ask thee to be silent. Was it not? For the pure and faithful dispensation of the Gospels and the Kingdom of God. No more. We are your judges, and not you ours. I cannot be judged by false Christians, for I have done nothing save preach Christ's true Gospel. Must you continue to dishonour the laws of the Commonwealth and the Church with your prideful conceit? If my conscience sees it fit. Then shall you be banished from this plantation's liberties. I would be glad on it. Then take your leave and trouble us no further. How sadly hath the Lord testified against you. English settler named William and the entirety of his family, wife Catherine, daughter Thomason, son Caleb, and fraternal twins Mercy and Jonas, really the heroes of the story, are banished from a Puritan colony over a religious dispute. I can remember after seeing this in the theater, the couple times we did, spending a decent amount of time talking about these twins and how just endlessly entertaining they are in this movie. <laughs> yeah, some of the reviews I saw from Letterboxd or wherever are like, oh, these twins are awful. And um, it's like, yeah, that's why they're funny. Yeah. <laughs> the vibe we get from this opening is that William is too extreme, even for the Puritans. I know. And we open not on William, but on a fresh-faced Anya Taylor-Joy as Thomason, essentially her film debut, making a bold hat choice. Okay. For court or whatever sure. this is. <laughs> Looking like Lady Gaga or something with this yeah. giant hat. <laughs> Finger on the Puritan pulse of fashion. Ralph Ineson as William, Kate Dickey as Catherine, Harvey Scrimshaw as Caleb, Ellie Granger as Mercy, Lucas Dawson as Jonas. I have to say that when this unnamed family is kicked to the curb... The townspeople don't seem too broken up about it. No, <laughs> They're like, good fucking rents. I know. I feel like they're a bit much. Yeah, they're that one family that is really in everybody's shit all yeah, the time. Yeah, exactly. Telling them what, what to do. Yeah. You're sinning. They're calling up the HOA board for someone having a sign in their yard that they shouldn't. They're not praying enough next door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And as they are leaving the community, taking all of their possessions, ominous music is playing. Right. They're heading out into the untamed, unknown wilderness, which 
we're going to contextualize this more as, as we go, but much like a lot of other period pieces, you really have to set yourself in the minds of the people. Right. We know now, for the most part, what is out there in the woods. Sure. Yeah. We understand the flora and the fauna and the animals and the fish. And yes, there are some things like bears that might kill people, but we kind of get it. Yeah. At this time period, their religious fervor and their beliefs are so strong. The idea of evil forces wasn't theoretical. It wasn't a possibility. It was a definite. Yeah. There are evil forces in this world. That's and right. the unknown of this wood was actually terrifying to these people in a sense. Sure. They are going out into the world. They don't know what could be out there. I know. Anything. And you definitely understand why these other townspeople were happy to just be rid of them. Because as we go on and we start to get more of a view of their religious beliefs, it's like so rigid you seemingly are always viewed as bad or evil, but live this life as rigid as you possibly can, and maybe God will accept you. Yeah, but the true nature of the characters, for the most part, turns out to be yeah hypocrisy, and you can kind of read into what the townspeople, the guys deciding to banish them, are saying, is that, in their opinion, they clearly think that William is being stubborn and which having would, a lot of prideful conceit, yeah. which will come up. That would be a flaw of his, I'd say. It's actually, as we find out more about him and how like incapable he is, it's a surprise that they make it as far as they do. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe they built this house. So the music, much like Psycho or any number of horror films, is telling us what to feel, what to expect, and is a huge part of it. Mark Corvin wrote the film's score, aiming to be, quote, tense and dissonant. Mission accomplished. Definitely. Unnerving, I'd say. It's definitely not music. It's sounds and yeah, yeah. unsettling scraping sounds. Right. And all kinds of, like scraping on an instrument. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the family builds a farm near a large secluded forest, and Catherine eventually bears her fifth child, Samuel, and since there is a little bit of a time jump, obviously the baby didn't exist, and then it does. They've established some sort of livable situation. They've built these little houses and everything. Acquired a goat somewhere along the way. Not entirely sure what purpose it serves on the farm here. Milk. Okay. There's a proud defiance, a stubbornness ingrained in the family. We are going to do this no matter... How poorly prepared we might be, no matter how misguided we might be, we Uh are doing this. We are going to make it work. And early on, Thomason establishes herself, at least in my eyes, and I know that some people share this take, as the true Christian of the family. Her sin is something she is open to admitting. There's true repentance in her prayers. We focus in on that very early on in the stage where they've just been banished in a way that is never shown for any of the other characters, they cling to their pride in the face of God, unlike Thomason, who's very open and says, I've disobeyed my parents, I've failed in my chores, I've had bad thoughts. She's very open with everything, all of her shortcomings, which is the true Puritan nature. And the irony is, of course, 
she will become the scapegoat That's for right. the, all of the family's problems, <laughs> yeah. and everyone will turn on her. The language that they're speaking in the film is called early modern English. It's understandable, obviously. It's a little bit different from Come hither. how we speak now. <laughs> yeah. That is also a recurring theme of Robert Eggers' films. Yeah, yeah. I know a lot of people had a lot of trouble with The Lighthouse and understanding it. Definitely. Some of that is also the delivery of the two characters. The Northman was not as hard to decipher. Right. But this one, it is helpful to put the subtitles on. You do get a little bit more out of it. Definitely. I think. Especially, it's mind-blowing to have these little children... Obviously, Anya Taylor-Joy is right around becoming an adult, but the other kids are younger, and them learning this and delivering it and being convincing in it, I know (laughs) that they're English and not American, but still, good God. I know. It's actually mind-blowing to me that I spent more of my life as a film fan not leveraging subtitles. Now it's like something that I can't do without i know once you cross that bridge plus we're getting older anyway, yeah true it's harder to hear oh, yeah. <laughs> i also think that a lot of things aren't mixed well for home that's true viewing anymore so a lot of times the dialogue's hard to hear when you have the rest of the sound at a reasonable level right but whatever i digress once yeah. you cross that bridge you can't go back i know you become dependent on them one day very early in the film thomason is playing peekaboo with samuel and the baby abruptly disappears. So we're like right into this. Yeah, it's very uh, yeah. early in the film. So as an audience, you're thinking this is a physical impossibility. This is supernatural. Right. Because it was her two eyes seconds. are closed for a second yeah. and then the baby is just gone. And she looks up towards the woods. Nothing around. There's some rustling, but you don't see anything. Yeah. And that's just it. While Thomason calls out her baby brother's name, we end up seeing a scampering figure carrying Samuel through the woods, although it's never a clear shot exactly, and then through a series of horrifying and grotesque little segments that are also very dark and somewhat hard to decipher. It's more or less revealed that a witch has stolen the unbaptized Samuel, killing him and then grinding him up to use his body to make a flying ointment for her broomstick and body. So not a lot left to mystery here. We're mere minutes into the film, and we actually are seeing a witch. A grotesque, nude woman. Not to be critical, but you know what I'm saying. No, no. (laughs) Not pleasant. Yeah. And then grinding up a baby. This actress. The rendered fat of an unbaptized, usually male baby, is an ingredient in witches' flying ointment, along with poisonous and hallucinogenic herbs, such as belladonna, hemlock, nightshade, and wolfsbane. Supposedly, a witch would rub this flying ointment on herself and her broom in order to fly. Baby Sam was taken in order to make this ointment. This kind of ties in with what I was saying at the beginning about how a lot of this is taken from the writings of the time period and formed together. I think what's cool about the movie is that they don't really explain a lot of this stuff. It's just taken from folklore of witches, and then you are expected to either know it or figure it out or read about it later. It's one of those that just keeps on giving. Yeah. You see her grinding something up. You assume it's the baby. It's kind of horrifying to think about. And then she's rubbing whatever it is all over her nude body and then a broomstick in a very disturbing sequence. Right. I guess I think probably my initial take was that this was a youth thing. 
Right, you know, especially because she looks younger, younger right. later in the film. But I think that, that she can just do that as part of her power. Yeah, which is a good unrelated. one to have. Yeah, wish I had that. The mindset and reality of being these people with these beliefs at this time is clear. If you go through the colonial writings that were used to help form the story, people believed in witches. It's not... Definitely, of course. Up for debate. Salem was a real thing. Yes. Witches were real because we think of witches now like the Wicked Witch of the West. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Green, Cackling, flying around, pointy hats, Halloween time. I think in this time period, the 1630s up through the Salem Witch Trials, everything, it's much more directly tied in with Satan and not its own spooky Halloween time. Right. It hasn't been commercialized yet. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's much more of a misogynistic creation to demonize women in a patriarchal society and how do we do that we tie women in with satan yes that's the easiest and fastest way in an overly religious repressive society (laughs) satan just wild is the answer (laughs) satan it all ties back to that yeah so you have to get into that mindset so when their baby disappears obviously if this happened in 2022 Catherine and William would be like, what the fuck did you do to the baby? They would just assume yeah. that Thomason did something to the baby. Uh-huh. And maybe she did. We can maybe talk about those theories later. But in 1630, yeah. they are willing to believe maybe that something supernatural could be at play. Definitely. Although William less so. I will say at a minimum, Thomason is getting blamed here. <laughs> she gets blamed, but I'm saying in a different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Today, there would be no other... Oh, right, right. They wouldn't yeah. be able to move on today. It would be like, you yeah. did this. Back then, there's the open possibility of evil forces from the woods, because that's just what everyone believed. This baby disappears. There's like a crime p- podcast about it. Like, what <laughs> happened? Catherine, obviously, is devastated by Samuel's abduction. She spends her days crying and praying, working up to a real hysteria, really, and... It will have a horrific and devastating yeah. consequences to Catherine. She's never really able to overcome this, and that will be her downfall in a way. Not that you can really blame her, but... Yeah, and the devastating blows to Catherine just continue, not just with her children, but the loss of one silver cup. Caleb's more or less at that awkward age where puberty's about to hit this MF. <laughs> Like a brick to the fucking face. Not a lot of girls around that he's not related to. Very, very early on, he's noticing Thomason's breasts. As she sleeps, he ogles his sister a couple of times throughout. Oh, boy. Yeah, this is something that I think people weren't cutting Caleb enough of slack here. And in our modern way of viewing things, we're quick to demonize this kid. Should we cut him some slack, maybe? I'll cut him a little slack. (laughs) It's not his fault that his family's so fucked up and sexually repressed, and it's put itself out in the middle of nowhere where there's no girls his age, and he's not being told about sex, obviously. Right. Doesn't really understand why he's feeling the way he feels, probably. And so people want to cast moral judgment on Caleb, I definitely have seen that in jokes and writing and when people talk about this movie and whatever. Like, haha, he stares at his sister's titties. He's a pig. I just don't think Fair. he really even understands yeah. what's going on. Right. Why would he even know what these feelings are and there's nowhere to direct them to because there's no other girls? 
Yeah, it doesn't seem like dad's going to be a good role model here. And so he's stuck in this sort of hell (laughs) that you can't (laughs) escape from. And no one's going to really relate to him. And this movie really focuses on the hard-lined edge of religion. And it's just beat into their heads over and over. You are a sinner. You are a sinner. There's no... Mercy, oddly enough, considering that's one of their children's names. <laughs> yeah. There's no mercy from God. There's no love from God. Right. It's all bad. <laughs> it's like you live to serve him and maybe he'll accept you. It's all hellfire and brimstone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's no room. And so he's having these feelings and urges yeah. and he doesn't know what they are and he knows better than to ask anyone. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, even trying to ask about his dead little brother. They won't even offer him any comfort like, yeah, he's in heaven. It's like, well, that's up to God. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. (laughs) We hope. (laughs) Oof. So, yes, a big theme in The Witch is sexual repression and repression in general. And this is the toll of their seclusion, is having your son lusting after your daughter. Definitely. Because there's no one else to lust after. It's almost like these things can't be stopped, no matter how hard we want to try as human beings. And here they come. (laughs) And if you don't address them in the right way, then you're going to get weird, fucked up shit happening. Yeah. So it's a good lesson not to be too serious in town, that they have to kick you out. With their crops not growing sufficiently to harvest before winter, William takes Caleb to the woods to hunt for wild animals to eat. Mm -hmm. While hunting with his father, Caleb questions... Whether Samuel's unbaptized soul will reach heaven. William noncommittal. Was Samuel born a sinner? Aye. I might then... We pray he hath entered God's kingdom. What wickedness hath he done? Place faith in God, Caleb. We'll speak no more on that, brother. Why? He hath disappeared, not one week past. Yet you and mother utter not his name. He is gone. Caleb. Tell me. Tell thee what? Is he an L? Caleb. Mother will not stop her prayer. And if I died, if I died this day. What is this? I ought evil in me heart. Me sins are not pardoned. Thou art young yet. And if God will not hear my prayer. Caleb. Tell me. It's a little window into how fucked this all is. This yes. insanely, insanely heavy burden of being born a sinner thrust onto children who don't really understand anything right and they're having to come to grips with it and they live in constant fear of messing up it just leads to a whole lot of problems and this stubborn pride of williams has taken his family away from a society where at the very least caleb and thomason and everyone else could be around other children and sort of learn how to interact in society and yeah. be normal kind Grow of up. Yeah. According to Robert Eggers, he did not direct Harvey Scrimshaw through most of his difficult scenes in the film. In those scenes, Scrimshaw was directed by Ralph Ineson, who plays William. Oh, yeah. Eggers had no children at the time, while Ineson was a father of two and frequently works as an acting instructor to children and knew much better how to coach a young boy. This was not planned, but Eggers admitted to Ineson catching on that Scrimshaw had a hard time understanding Eggers' direction. According to Eggers, Ineson used Scrimshaw's passion for soccer and coached him like Scrimshaw was preparing for a high-stakes game of football. Whatever he did, 
oh, works. Yeah. Absolutely. And Caleb is off the charts, really. Really committed in a way that you don't see from a lot of child actors because there's just a real legitimate passion and legitimate stakes to his scenes, especially Definitely. spoiler alert, his death scene, which uh-huh. is unbelievable. Yeah, I know. And to get into that mindset and be able to pull all of that off is really incredible. All of the kids are good in this. Definitely. I think Caleb shines the most only because Thomason is older already. Yeah. And we know that Anya Taylor-Joy is a good actress and right. has a career and everything. And then the other two, the twins, are a lot younger. Yeah. And especially the boy twin really doesn't say much. Yeah. It's mostly Mercy, who is hilarious, <laughs> but it's not really the same <laughs> yeah. as the monologue right. that Caleb gives. Well, plus the Thomason character is a little bit, while she has problems and conflicts, certainly within the family, she seems a little bit more normal, and it's probably because she spent more time with society. Yeah, she's a little grounded. Yeah. And her faith, as I said, which I thought to be the most legitimate of the family in the end because of the way she acts and is mindful of her own shortcomings, is more realistic and not as unhinged, really. I guess it's the right word. Yeah, She doesn't freak out about everything. (laughs) I know. She says her prayers and then gets on with her life and tries to be a good person. It's not this horrific, violent, disgusting, upsetting thing all the time hanging over her head. And she is generally trying to please her parents, it seems like. Yeah, and most of the things that happen are likely not her fault. Right. Although, like I said, we can sort of get into some of the theories at the end. But from what we see, at least, it doesn't seem like she's really to blame for any of the problems that she gets blamed for. Totally. William also discloses to Caleb that he traded Catherine's prized silver cup for hunting supplies and traps in order to gather enough food for winter. A lot of secrets going on in this family. He swears his son to secrecy. Their dog, Fowler, spots a hare, and William tries to shoot it, but fails spectacularly. Just an embarrassment. Don't really know enough about guns, let alone colonial period guns, to really explain what well, this is. It just sort of backfires <laughs> yeah. in a weird way. My original interpretation is like that this fucks him up, but it doesn't really. But it seems it like hurts, it, but it's not yeah. serious. A hare appears frequently in the film. In colonial New England, hares were considered magical creatures in their own right. They were often associated with witches, either as a milk hare, which stole or spoiled milk from the farm animals, or the witch themselves, who were thought able to turn into a hare in order to spy on and influence people. Mm -hmm. So again, that could be your explanation for the hare, which shows up a lot throughout the film. Totally. Finally, we get to Jonas and Mercy singing their little Black Phillips song, dancing around, <laughs> just prancing like little penguins in their tight <laughs> yes. colonial Insane clothes. outfits, yeah. <laughs> they are so funny, especially Mercy, yeah. who is the star of the two. Just a shit talker. Talks shit, yeah. runs around, singing, <laughs> screaming, laughing. This is a life of chores, and they just never do any. Yeah. Just never doing and they anything. They seemingly never listen to their parents. Yeah. And the parents just don't even react. Almost as if they're beyond help. They know that they can't point. control these two. They're hilarious little hellions. Yeah. Completely out of control. And when they fight with their siblings, it's great too. They laugh at their father when he slips in mud. 
trying to wrangle Black Phillip. And then Thomason seems to take all the blame as if it's her fault that the twins don't listen and don't do anything. (laughs) She's now a target within the family, presumably because of what happened with Samuel. You can't do anything right. And then one of the weirdest parts of the movie really is Catherine yelling at Thomason to help her father who has slipped in the mud. And then Thomason is basically helping William undress. (laughs) in a very bizarre moment because it's unclear why William can't untie that thing around his neck and his waist himself. I don't know. He's just worthless. I don't know. He can't do anything. But there's definitely a weird vibe there. Yeah, I agree. I'm not sure what that's all about. Which Catherine initiates, but then later throws in Thomason's face like it's her fault. Yeah, well, it's tough for Thomason. Immediately after that weird incestuous moment, there's some more awkwardness at the brook between Caleb and Thomason because he's staring at her chest again, but she's completely innocent and oblivious, does not know what is going on. So then she's grabbing him and tickling him, and they're like rolling around. (laughs) Yikes. Thomason is almost having like a Scorsese's after hours experience. Just a frustrating existence. And then Mercy sneaks up on them. I be the witch of the wood. <laughs> clickety, 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 spinning around in a circle. It's like, what? I know. Well, she's into the commercialized version of the witch. Mercy is the first character to speak of a witch. This is the first time it's actually spoken okay, about. Yeah. Caleb is under the impression that Samuel was snatched by a wolf. And he is upset by this witch talk. How nice of that wolf to just leave Thomason unharmed. And her to not hear it or see it. Right. There's a lot to take away from this brief little scene with Mercy and then Thomason pushing back and kind of getting into it with her. And this little <laughs> yeah, weird moment. Two. Because Mercy says mother hates Thomason, which seems to be true. Yeah. And it's clear that amongst the children here on this brook... There are a lot of unresolved feelings and fear when it comes to what happened with Samuel because they're not really allowed to talk about it. And it's a huge traumatic thing that happened (laughs) and no one can say anything about it. And everyone's just pretending. And I think at some point, don't they mention that it's only been like weeks? Yeah. Yeah. This is also the first time Mercy references being in communication with Black (laughs) Phillip, which... The first time she says it, you think she's probably joking. And then, of course, later in the film, you're not so sure. You're like, Patrice O'Neill? Mercy says she has seen the witch flying around. (laughs) Don't know if she's telling the truth or not. You never really know. Right. Everything that's going on with these twins and Black Phillip and potentially what they're pushing forward and not is always one of the mysteries of the movie. Thomason then says that she's actually the witch. I am that very witch. No. No. (laughs) Mercy starts panicking. Cowering immediately. But Thomason says something interesting. She says something to the effect of when I sleep. Something like that. Which plays into one of the theories of the film because a lot of the supernatural stuff seems to occur when Thomason is unconscious or asleep or just waking up and things of that nature. So who knows exactly, but... Two of the female children of this unnamed family, both claiming to be the witch in a short amount of time. Definitely. And because the belief in witches is so strong, 
I guess Thomason feels confident enough to make this joke, but then threaten to bewitch Mercy if she tells her parents. Yeah, yeah. And Here she's we go. Like, I swear it. Another secret. <laughs> that night, Catherine questions Thomason about the disappearance of the silver cup and more or less lets out her suspicions about Samuel's disappearance as well. Did a wolf vanish that too? <laughs> Talking Pretty brutal shit, yeah. line. And a pretty weak and gutless defense from dad here. I know. Not admitting to what happened to the cup, but also pathetically trying to get his wife to stop picking on their daughter. I know. Where did he go to sell this thing? Well, he references that people, like traders and trappers, come through. Well, occasionally, yeah, make an appearance. Since they're all crammed into this little hovel on their farm, the children overhear their parents discussing how important Catherine's silver cup was which is the only substitute for money if the crops continue to die, as well as the possibility of sending Thomason away to serve another family as she is reaching womanhood. And finally, someone says it, Catherine, we should have never left. I know. <laughs> we will starve. Meanwhile, the kids are just hearing all I this, know. this panic. They do like the quick check to make sure the kids are asleep, which is say their names. Yeah, that's not working. Meanwhile, William is adamant that they not go back. He's still holding strong on his position that they can do this and they're not going back. They're not giving in. It's more than just his stubborn pride with the community as well. There's this mindset of, I will conquer nature. I will overcome this. I will not be defeated by this. Which also plays into stubbornness and pride as well. But it's almost coming from two different angles. I don't want to admit I was wrong and have to go crawling back to those people. And also, I should be able to do this. Yeah. He My may faith have... in God will protect us and we will overcome this. Yeah. May have overplayed his hand. <laughs> Just a bit. Yeah. Later in the pitch black of night, Thomason finds Caleb at the stable preparing to check a trap in the forest and then forces her brother to take her with him by threatening to awaken their parents. So Caleb is so disturbed by what he's overheard that he's taking this initiative to try to fix the family problems himself. It's sort of weird, this whole, what ends up becoming the Caleb storyline and him going out to the woods, that it's really a secret that his dad was taking him hunting, it seems like. Well, it's all connected. It all traces back to the Silver Cup. True. Because they're using yeah. traps and all that shit that they got from That's right. trading the cup. And then in that panicky moment when William doesn't know what to say to Catherine, Caleb speaks up and lies and tells this lie about seeing apples uh-huh. in the valley. And so they went to go look for them and they couldn't find them. And that's the lie. So they keep building all these lies on top of each other and it becomes this like tangled web of lies right. that really do all trace back to the silver cup yes but Catherine later will be like oh so caleb went out in the woods with you mad at william but i don't know they live right by the friggin woods yeah but they're not allowed to go in the woods yeah the kids i know because like where else are you gonna go (laughs) only in the clearing yeah like i said they truly believe right in the possibility of something evil well, or unknown being in the woods. They it, may be justified in yeah, that. Yeah, in this particular yeah. story, it seems as if they're justified. It's almost like the village. In fact, I actually do think that they are living in modern times. Okay. <laughs> they walk There's far like enough to the highway. Over. Yeah. 
In the woods, Thomason reminisces of life back in England. Glass, glass windows, happier times. I know, now they're just in like this desolate, no one around area. They probably lived in like a normal town in England. Like, was this really worth it? Yeah, I think the implication is that William's hard-headedness and... Has ruined their lives. Potentially misguided devotion has been the downfall of their family and ruined their happiness. Right. Caleb, for his part, does not remember the glass. But then there's this goddamn hair. Uh-huh. It's as if it's been stalking them and their family. The hare sends their horse into a panic, which does lead one to believe that there's more than just a hare at play here, if the horse is freaking out that much. I think so. And the dog, Fowler, gives chase to it. The horse throws Thomason, knocking her unconscious, and then runs away. Back at the home front, the rest of the family is frantically searching for them. Meanwhile, Caleb becomes lost in the woods and stumbles upon Fowler's disemboweled body. Rough, rough scene to take in. I don't like when the dogs get killed. He actually overhears the dog being killed and then stumbles on the body, which is kind of a double whammy. Yeah, yeah, not for me. While William is finding Thomason at the edge of the forest, Caleb goes deeper and deeper into the darkness through tangled vines and trees until he discovers a small hut from which the witch, disguised as a beautiful woman, dressed in a red cape, emerges to quickly and efficiently seduce him. Sure, goes right for it. The witch kisses and embraces Caleb, her arm growing old and withered as she caresses his head. It's very reminiscent of The Shining. Yeah. I know that The Shining was a big influence on Eggers in the making of this film. I liked reading about how Harvey Scrimshaw, who was pretty young and had not really had the opportunity to have many kisses in life, was nervous about this scene. And I bet. It makes sense because the young witch is played by Sarah Stevens, who is a model and won like a Victoria's Secret contest or something. <laughs> and all of a sudden you're kissing her Listen, in man, a movie. This is probably the ceiling for you. <laughs> it's like squints in the sandlot. Yeah. <laughs> it's like slipping her tongue. <laughs> Locking on. Yeah, you do like to hope for Caleb that as he has this experience that she's maintaining the young witch look. Yeah, we don't really know how this all plays out. At home, Catherine angrily chastises Thomason for taking Caleb into the woods. So essentially, Thomason is getting blamed for everything. Again, yeah. But as I said, it's all related to the tangled web of lies regarding the silver cup. To finally stand up for his daughter, William reluctantly admits that he sold the cup, which leads to a Catherine meltdown. She even ends up striking William outside. Right. In that moment, I will say that Thomason seems to find temporary favor with her mother, as Catherine's vitriol is now directed at her husband instead, because there's that moment where yes. Thomason says that she's going to bed down the goats, and her mother's very kind about the whole thing. Yeah, she's just like, completely Don't do it now. changes. Right. William plans to set out first thing in the morning to search for Caleb, but he still refuses to seek help from the settlement. Well, now that they don't have a horse, they're even more isolated. Yeah. As a storm rages outside, Thomason goes to bed down the goats for the night, and she ends up discovering Caleb just outside the home, naked, delirious, and mysteriously ill. One of the things that is 
darkly humorous to me okay. is William constantly chopping wood. Oh, even yeah. in the down the pouring night, rain. Yeah. And it seems to be his only That's his workout. Outlet. Yeah. Because he can't do anything else, and this will get thrown in his face later in the movie, but he knows that he's failing at everything. And yeah. so the one thing that he can do is chop wood, and they have so much chopped wood. Right. <laughs> yeah, like the modern day version of this is the dad who goes down to the basement with the lead pipe and just hits the pole over and over. <laughs> the next day, while Caleb is still sick and uh, unconscious, the twins are back to their old tricks. <laughs> Just being assholes. Speaking to and singing songs about Black Philip, they once again accuse Thomason of witchcraft and state that she is responsible for what happened to Caleb. Thomason attempts to milk the nanny goat only to get blood. Hmm. Bad omen. Which is always a simple and effective, gross and upsetting yeah. thing, is to see blood coming out of something when it's not supposed to be blood. That is upsetting, yes. You imagine the goat is in pain. It's just... I know. It's unsettling. I don't like it. I know. You're thinking about, like, kidney stones. <laughs> Facing a truly uncertain and formidable winter and not knowing what to do about Caleb, William tells Catherine that they will return to civilization in the morning. Thomason will go to another family, and Caleb will go to the doctor. Catherine longs to be all the way back in England and admits to a crisis of faith, saying her heart has turned to stone after Samuel's disappearance. She's like, this sucks. You've ruined our lives. Caleb awakens with a scream, bringing the rest of the family by his side. He's speaking wildly and gasping, seeming to describe an attack by some unseen force as he convulses. The boy then vomits up a whole apple with a single bite taken out of it. Yeah, I definitely remember this being the most intense scene in the theater. This and what follows, like, leading up to his death. But the whole family's pretty much on board now. (laughs) That something's fucked up here. It's a very visceral and gritty type of scene, too. Which I think adds to the believability of the idea of the supernatural to this family. It's nothing flashy, nothing over the top, just something that is impossible and doesn't make sense. It happens suddenly. And then, as I've already alluded to, an incredible performance from a child actor here, really selling it to the oh, yeah, dude. audience. Catherine urges the family to pray, but the twins claim to forget the proper words and then <laughs> flail about on the ground. Once again, misbehaving. Before becoming unresponsive. This is after they tell their parents everything that Thomason has been saying, seemingly in jest thus accusing her of witchcraft, but for the moment, William's having none of it. So when Samuel first disappears and the story that Caleb believes, I believe that William thinks it's a wolf as well. Uh And it does take some convincing for him to believe that witchcraft is involved. He's not as quick to it as some of the other members of the family. Does the presence of the apple help? Caleb seems to come to for a moment before passionately proclaiming his love for Christ and then dying before their very eyes. Watching his son die, I do think, is a turning point as far as what William is willing to believe. I think he's starting to accept defeat a little bit here. So the whole situation with 
Jonas and Mercy is more than just a laugh. It's something specific. During the witch hunts of colonial America, it was widely believed that a witch could not say the entire Lord's Prayer. So this is why the family is upset when Mercy and Jonas are unable to finish the prayer, seemingly for no reason. It all plays into the big mystery of Jonas and Mercy, though. We don't really know for sure what's going on with them. What is a joke? What is play acting? Are they really talking to Black Phillip? It seems like they are. I know. I would go so far as to say they are based on my theories of the film but and, well, and their fate is left unknown really right that's what a lot of people think but no they're dead oh okay is that clear okay it's clear enough in my opinion all right very well caleb's death scene and jonas and mercy's behavior during it is based on trial records from the salem witch trials which allowed for spectral evidence During the trials, witnesses would declare the spirit of the witch, taking on the form of birds or animals as well as people, was appearing before them in order to torture them. Typical torments would be pinching, prickling with needles, biting, scratching, sitting on the person's chest so that they could not breathe, choking them when they tried to say prayers, and inducing fits, all of which are behaviors shown in the film. So there's two sides to the twins not saying the prayer. Either they're not saying it because they are witches and they can't, or the witch is preventing them from doing it. Right, right. (laughs) You see, if you're on the right side of the trial, you're not the one being accused at trial and during the Salem Witch Trials. You're always in the right. You can always just, either way, you come out on top as long as you're not being accused. Yeah. Either you can't say it because you're a witch, or either I can't say it because you're stopping me from saying it because you're a witch. (laughs) No matter what, you're a witch. (laughs) Yeah, so like I said... At the outset of the episode, I I really think that the whole story ends up playing out as its own little microcosm of the Salem Witch Trials in general and the accompanying hysteria. The hysteria is slowly building throughout the family until it reaches a fever pitch here in a minute. Yeah, and what happens yeah, with William here is sort of like the culmination of a trial. He's doing the interrogation live. (laughs) Yeah. And seemingly in the moment when they're up in that room where Caleb dies, Thomason is able to pass the tests. Yeah. She can say the Lord's Prayer, it seems like, and she pledges her love to Christ and everything else. She seems to be doing everything right, and yet the suspicion has already been thrown on her. And since she's older and developing into a woman, it makes more sense, I guess, in this society that it would be her and not the twins. And that's where the... The spotlight has been shown. Okay. The death of Caleb under such bizarre circumstances does really set William off. He had previously dismissed the notion of any witch, because even before Jonas and Mercy start saying it, Catherine mentions it, and he laughs her off and says, you speak like a child. No. (laughs) Trying to go back to the old town was never an option for William, but now that door is open. Even furthermore than just the mere existence of a witch... The idea that the witch would be amongst his own family has really set him off. He was in denial, but now things have changed. William pretends to be the comforting father to Thomason, who runs out of the house, but in reality, he now believes Thomason to be a witch. He tells her that she will be put on trial when the family returns to town. In retaliation, Thomason points out all of William's own sins and shortcomings. You cannot produce crops... You cannot hunt, 
you do nothing save chop wood. He's just yeah. yelling in his face. <laughs> save chop wood. <laughs> Thomason, in turn, accuses the twins of actually being involved with witchcraft, as well as adding that Black Philip yeah. is likely Lucifer. <laughs> I mean, they're the ones talking to this goat all the time. I just like how she's casually like, yeah, this goat is probably Lucifer, by the way. No kidding. <laughs> As the devil often takes the form of a billy goat, something that you think would have maybe occurred to the parents who, really, what are they doing all day I that know. they don't notice their twins are talking to a fucking black goat? Like, what? <laughs> yeah. what is the backstory on this goat? Enraged and confused about the identity of the real culprit amongst the family, William seals all of his remaining children in the goat house. (laughs) Stay here. We'll figure it out later. In Basque mythology, the black goat is a commonly known figure related to the devil. Furthermore, the magical encounter between witches is called Akalair, which in Basque means meadow of the goat, Goats were commonly associated with Satan and witchcraft in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Many believed that Satan took the form of a goat, which led to a common belief that goats were a part of the witch's Sabbath. So all these little animals oh, are yeah. all connected That's to That's right. They're all involved. Thomason, when questioned by Jonas and Mercy when they're locked in the goat house, denies being a witch. But the twins do not answer when she asks them if they have truly spoken with Black Philip, again, leaving us in the dark as to what really has been going on with these twins. Meanwhile, Catherine and William bury Caleb. Truly a heartbreaking moment when Catherine climbs down into the grave to lay with her dead son. Hard to watch. Even though they're evidently planning on returning to town, William continues to chop wood long (laughs) after the sun has set. Thomason overhears her father breaking down and confessing to God that he has been prideful and that he made his family leave the village out of stubbornness rather than sincere religious devotion. Oh, boy. So it's confirmation as to what we've known all along. He has set them up into this world that they were unprepared for, and now they are paying the price. To say the least, it's a long and unsettling night. Definitely. <laughs> a lot happens, <laughs> and it's not great for anyone. Let's start out yeah. in the goat house. There's a clatter on the roof, but it ain't jolly old St. Nick. Just seems like a lot of noise happening. It seems like it ends up being pretty loud out here. Well, something lands on the roof, and then all of a sudden, it's almost like it's just there all of a sudden, and then the... The kids all notice it at the same time. Yeah, There's right. a witch, and she's here to feed. Thomas and Jonas and Mercy see the witch drinking blood from the nanny goat. The woman seems huge. It's uh-huh. hard to really get the scale going, but she seems very tall and just big. Yeah, right. Nude. Uh-huh. Eating yeah, from this goat. Yeah. Before she turns and cackles at them in almost a stereotypical over-the-top witch cackle. Uh-huh. And then what happens here is, and you really only get a audio clue, is that she attacks the twins and kills them. Okay. I believe there was a deleted scene, maybe. It's not on the home video stuff, but I've heard that there was maybe a deleted scene where you see Mercy get stabbed or something. 
probably a bit much. Yeah, because yeah. the twins are pretty young and, uh, and probably and adorable too. <laughs> adorable. <laughs> we don't want to see these kids get murdered. But uh, that's the idea: is yeah. that she. What? You hear something yeah. fucked up right. happening, yeah. and then Thomason's still alive, yeah, so yeah. you have to just deduce what happens. Meanwhile, and this actually was the part, I think, when we saw it in the theater for the first time that really jumped out to me. It oh, was my like, oh, my gosh. Dude, this was shocking to me. <laughs> in the house, Catherine has a hallucinatory vision of Caleb holding baby Samuel. She's overjoyed. Caleb offers the baby to her and asks if she will look at a book with him that he has brought. She begins to breastfeed the baby, but the hard cut for us, the audience, who have to see this, in reality, it is actually a raven that violently pecks at her breast, leaving her bloodied as she cackles. If I remember correctly, there's a bit of a score playing, and it's emotional when she's... Yeah. And then it just cuts to a very dry... In this empty room, yeah. the glow is gone, oh. and she's like out of it, cackling into yeah. the air as this raven just pecks at her. Oof. Really, truly disturbing. It actually sat with me for days after the viewing. I thought maybe they buried the two kids in the pet cemetery. Oh, yeah. That usually works, so. <laughs> the ground is sour. Yeah. <laughs> the ground is bad. This is an allusion to the witch's teat which is usually some sort of a imperfection or an extra nipple or something where they feed blood to their familiar, which is often a raven or something fucked up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just an allusion to it. One by one, each of the characters seems to be sucked into some sort of a covenant with the devil, and yeah. that's what he's referring to. And he's giving her what she desires, which is to have her children back yeah. who have disappeared or died. Now, Catherine's actual experience here, hard to say. She wakes up in the morning, seems sort of weird. I think she's gone over to the devil's side okay. at this point because she almost, like a zombie in Pet Cemetery, has just become yeah. a non-human almost right. in her anger and rage. William awakens and finds the goat house completely destroyed, the goats eviscerated, the twins (laughs) missing, and an unconscious Thomason lying among the wreckage with blood-stained hands. As she awakens, Black Philip gores and kills William right in front of her. And this combined with the raven are the two jump scares. You really don't see this goat thing coming. It's like, oh, shit! Yeah. And then William has this moment where he's clearly fucked up after taking this horn (laughs) to his gut. But then he's like, all right, I'm going to make a stand here. Grabs the axe, but then just is like, no. Yeah, and then he throws it down. He's like, just end it. Yeah, (laughs) I can't do this anymore. Director Robert Eggers said in an interview that the best behaved animal actor in the film was the hare. And that the raven and the horse were also easy to work with, but the goat, Black Philip, was reportedly difficult to train. One of the scenes when Philip lunges at and struggles with William was not written in the script. It just happened. And I think that's the first time when the kids are, the twins are running around. Okay. Remember, it jumps yeah. up on its hind legs. Right. And yeah. It's like grab it. Uh huh. I guess that was unscripted. Oh, wow. An unhinged Catherine now blaming Thomason for all of the tragedies that have befallen the family and accusing her 
of seducing both William and Caleb attacks her. She throws Thomason to the ground while Thomason keeps saying, I love you. Catherine begins to strangle her daughter down in the dirt, and Thomason ends up having to kill her mother with a billhook in self-defense while crying. So everything is completely gone to shit on this form. <laughs> yeah, we are I know. at the point of no return. Plenty of firewood, though. You could have fires for months. Yeah, I guess you'd probably be tempted to eat your family, too, when, yeah. <laughs> when you really started running out of food. Exhausted, Thomason falls back asleep. When she awakens, it's dark outside again. She hears a chiming sound, which is almost kind of unnatural. Yeah, I'd say so. It's not quite like a clackety bell that a goat would have around its neck at that time period. It's not quite like a computer sound, but it's unnatural Mm. for this time period, it seems like. And she finds Black Phillip in the stable. Thomason urges the goat to speak with her as it did her brother and sister. The goat responds with a human voice. Black Phillip... I conjure thee to speak to me. Speak as thou to speak to Jonas and Mercy. Dost thou understand my English tongue? Answer me. I cannot write my name. I will guide thy hand. The voice asks Thomason if she would like the taste of butter, a pretty dress, if she would like to live deliciously. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Meaning a life of luxury, the likes of which she has never seen, obviously. Yeah, really, look around. The voice materializes into a tall, black-clad man who we never really get a good look at. Just get a sense of no. We don't see his face. I was kind of like really. picturing him as like a pirate, though. He's got a little bit of a pirate vibe. Yeah. He's presumably meant to be Satan himself. Right. He tells Thomason to remove her clothes and sign her name in a book that appears before her. So this is just how it's done. This is how you sign up. 
Black Phillip asks Thomason, wouldst thou like the taste of butter? Which is one of the more memorable quotes from the film. You see people reference it sometimes. Uh-huh. In the 15th and 16th centuries, the Catholic Church declared eating butter was a bigger sin than lying, blasphemy, or impurity. The Protestant Reformation leader Martin Luther railed against this edict, which was often only enforced on the poor. So it's more the sense that eating butter was considered a sin, not that it was particularly rare or anything like that. It that's where that comes from. It's not random that he says it. Gotcha. The characters frequently accuse each other of signing the book. And a book is offered to Catherine and then finally Thomas in here to sign by Black Philip. In Puritan theology, a person recorded a covenant with the devil by signing or making their mark in the devil's book with pen and ink mm-hmm. or with blood. Oh. Only with such signing according to the beliefs of the time, did a person actually become a witch and gain demonic powers, such as appearing in spectral form to do harm to another. So you just have to sign the registry, and you're in. Basically. I don't know what you're giving up, but... Yeah. It's hard to blame Thomason for making this choice now. Well, the family's gone. She's alone in the wilderness. Her life has sucked. She tried to be a good girl and yet got blamed for everything. I know. She's the last one standing. What else are you going to do? Thomason follows Black Phillip into the forest, nude, where she joins a coven holding a witch's Sabbath around a bonfire. The witches begin to levitate, and Thomason joins them, laughing maniacally and ascending above the trees with her newfound sense of belonging. It's a powerful, dramatic ending. Definitely. And you can also read a lot into it. Yeah. Because I'm sure for some women especially in a modern context, they see this as liberating and the right choice and that her laughing is freedom, which is also expressed through uh-huh. getting rid of the clothes. That's the whole idea is that they're shedding who they were and right. are now free. But you could also look at it, there's not a lot of happiness in her eyes when she's laughing. It definitely seems more crazed than yeah. happy laughter. Well, she's been pushed pretty far. Yeah, who are these other women? Who are these witches? We don't know. They don't seem surprised that she's there. Well, she signed the book. Yeah, yeah. Part of the club. They all got a text alert. Welcome aboard. <laughs> yeah. New witch in town. <laughs> <laughs> Where are my witches it's at? On the group chat. <laughs> I think that when trying to make sense of this film, it's important to contextualize the witch, as we've emphasized over and over. The supernatural was considered part of everyday life in colonial North America. It wasn't limitless. It wasn't as if superhero movies were real or things like that. But things that we would now consider to be obviously not real were just taken for granted as if, of course, they're real. That's just part of life. It'd be kind of fun if we had that. It was all mixed in Satan, a lot of demonic possession, witchcraft, Witchcraft, as I said, is often a scapegoat for when things go wrong. Death, inability to produce crops, a cow won't give milk, whatever. And who takes that blame in this society? Women. Take all of that, mix it all together, and place it in a staunchly patriarchal society. Suspicion and paranoia spreading through the communities. The target would inevitably land upon a woman or women. Women were often viewed as inherently dark and evil, 
their mere existence seen as a temptation or a threat. Thomason, transitioning from childhood to womanhood, embodies everything tenuous about this puritanical and restrictive time. Through no fault of her own, she becomes the center of the storm in her family of uncertainty, accusations, jealousy, mistrust, lust, and blame. Oh, yeah. It's through Robert Eggers's James Cameron-like devotion to detail that what happens in the film feels so shocking. Strict, unfailing naturalism in every aspect, what it looks like, what they're doing, how the characters are, how they talk, commingling with the supernatural. That's an effective fairy tale, is interjecting a witch or something supernatural into what otherwise seems like a real, unflinching historical document. Uh huh. And what we're left with is a fantastical, brooding horror film. The story of this family with no family name is not just a microcosm of the Salem witch trials of 1692, but it's also representative of early colonial America in general, religious disputes, religious freedom, banishment, the untamed and unknown wilderness. It's all there. Right. I guess I do understand people's sort of being over the A24 horror movie style, but when this came out, this was such a welcome stylistic choice for a horror movie because it just seemed unsettling in a unique way that wasn't really what we were seeing out of most of the genre at this time yeah it was definitely a shake-up we were used to a lot more jump scare type films like the conjuring which we did last year or paranormal activity or whatever sinister you know all the different things of the time this was something completely different i think that a real home run would be to try to find the unsettling building dread of something like The Witch or Hereditary and then mix in a little bit of your typical slasher payoff with True. some blood and some yeah. some kills and some gross stuff. And then also some of the jump scares, too. I right. think if you could somehow find a balance of all of those things. You'd be cooking. Yeah. I just think that the backlash to A24 which mostly developed after right. this film, came as a result of a lot of hype and build and marketing that would lead people to believe one thing and then they feel disappointed and left out. I don't think The Witch is the worst example of that. No, but no. Yeah, I would definitely mark The Witch down in the positive column for A24. For sure. And even though I do have some problems with the way they seem to do things and how they mold their aesthetic to all kind of look the same. Yeah, that part of it, I'm starting to feel a little bit of resistance towards. For the most part, I'd still say the batting average is still good as far as I'm concerned. It does get a little repetitive, though. So let's get into the theories a little bit. Of course, first and foremost, you can take everything at face value. Right. Which plays into how I see it, too. I think that the story is a microcosm for the Salem Witch Trials, paranoia, misogyny, the patriarchal, repressive, sexually repressed society, all condensed into one family in one situation. Refusing to see reality. You can see it as a story built upon sin. The, fa- the members of the family save Samuel, of course, who's an innocent child, a baby, Give in to the seven deadlies. Obviously, religion plays a huge part. 
we know that. The first sin belongs to William, the father. The sin of prideful conceit. He refuses to back down. He puts his family in danger over his own ego. Catherine, the mother, is unable to forgive and harbors her own poisonous feelings of anger until she lashes out, admitting her envious feelings toward Thomason, accusing Thomason of seducing her son and her husband. I think you can logically take the next step and think, well, Thomason is young, Thomason is beautiful, there's envy. And that's why she's always blaming her for everything. Yeah. And the thing with Samuel, obviously, which she can't forgive. Totally. Caleb succumbs to lust, first expressed by him continuously checking out his own sister's body, and then finally with the sexy version of the witch. Now, to be fair, it doesn't seem like he had much of a choice. (laughs) Yeah. I think this is more like... Yeah, yeah. Symbolically saying which sin they get sucked into. But I guess even if we want to cut them that slack, it's probably never a great idea to check out your sister's titties. I think that's a fair statement. (laughs) You might want to not do that if you can help it. (laughs) Jonas and Mercy sort of tag team Wrath and Sloth. They betray Thomason and turn the family against her out of their anger over her pretending to be the witch. But also, they refuse to obey their parents or contribute to the many, many chores and seemingly don't do anything. Now, I know they're still pretty little, but that would be expected of them by that point. Absolutely. To do something. All of these family members pay the ultimate price for their sins, whereas Thomason, in actuality, the most pure and devout. Unlike her family, she is truly aware of her shortcomings, as is seen early in the film during her confessional prayer. She also becomes the scapegoat when the rest of the family members fail to take accountability for their sins. So it's possible that Eggers is saying something about society at large. Yeah. The woman takes the blame for when everything goes wrong. That is seen in the person of Thomason. Despite her always seemingly trying to do the right thing. As each of them push farther and farther away, Satan, or the witch, or however you want to think of it, takes hold. Pushed to her limits, Thomason makes the easy decision in the end, a life of luxury and freedom or face nature alone, or even possibly have to answer for all of the death on the farm. Seems like a pretty simple decision. The path she was devoted to has led her to that moment. It's time for her devotion and energy to be directed somewhere else. She breaks free from a society and structure that has betrayed her. She was a true innocent, but now that doesn't matter anymore. One by one, the devil tempts the members of the family into sin, William first. Then probably the twins. It's hard to say. But if we take what they say at face value, they were communicating with (laughs) Black Phillip before anything happens with Caleb. They were in the crew early on. Then Caleb, his weakness being lust. Then Catherine, finally, when she makes a covenant with the devil to see her dead children. And then finally Thomason, who was the true prize all along, the one he's really after, the true Puritan. Because she was so pure at the beginning, I feel like she's the feather in the cap. Yeah, yeah. Like, look who I got. (laughs) (laughs) There's also a theory that I think originated on Reddit, so take of that what you will. Okay, lay it on me. That there was no witch, and Thomason was evil the entire time, and and that the movie tricks you into thinking she's 
right and the oh, innocent yeah. victim because every time the movie starts weaving into the supernatural stuff for the most part i think there's some exceptions honestly well, she's but unconscious or whatever it comes out of her being unconscious or her just waking up or different things that could lead you to think it's a dream and that she's created this witch fantasy to explain her actions and she's killed her siblings for various reasons to either protect them from their abusive father or whatever. So it then, kind of falls into that whole thing we talked about yeah. with you were never really here where I kind of don't really see the point of yeah. something like that. Well, and then like, what's the point of the end then? I don't know. It's still I, part of her fantasy to yeah. explain what she did. I mean, I do think that there's some merit to the fact that she's always passed out when things are happening, but... I don't know. If it's not all that she's becoming a witch at the end of the movie, then I'm not really sure what else is being said here. <laughs> Part of me thinks that it's that same mentality of everything that gets dissected to death online where people want to think that they've outsmarted everyone else and they know the real things that happen in movies and every movie becomes what you're seeing is not actually what's happening. Yeah. And then at a certain point, you start to even lose the plot as to like what even is the <laughs> point know. of this movie then? Yeah. Why are we even watching anything? So it is kind of annoying, but totally. I will say that we did Mulholland Drive this year, so that can be the case with movies. For sure. And I would venture a guess as to say that someone like Robert Eggers or David Lynch or whoever wants that to be a part of it, but that doesn't mean that that's what it is. Right. In other words, there's never really one thing. So if you want to view it as there's no supernatural elements in the film, you can because of this, 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 and this. Now, I did see online that Robert Eggers apparently left some clues throughout the film to make people think that it could potentially not be supernatural, but I really wasn't able to find what those were. So I don't know what that was in reference to. Yeah. So I do think there's more than one way to interpret what you're seeing because I also think that it's possible that part of the idea of talking about why witches were a thing in this country and why people had Salem witch trials and blamed women for all this stuff is sort of accepting the fact that it wasn't real Right. That these women were being used as scapegoats. So when you follow that thread, you could come to the conclusion that maybe they wouldn't want to suggest that witches are real in the movie. But I don't know. Yeah. Just thinking through this, there's a decent amount of parts that you can make those arguments for. And I'm kind of into it. But what about the whole Caleb sequence? The dude throws up an entire apple and then dies. Seemingly, she doesn't kill him. Yeah. I don't know. But she poisoned him, I guess. Okay. I'm not really sure. I didn't go too far down that rabbit yeah, yeah, hole. Yeah. Just because, like I said, you start getting into that thing of outsmarting the movie right. and what is the point of this. Yeah. I do like creative directors who are putting clues out there and breadcrumbs for you to follow, but I like it to add up, too. Well, like I said, I think that sometimes you can piece together different ideas and different theories and the sum of all those things is the point yeah yeah it's not necessarily one is right and the rest are wrong it's all together is part of the point exactly to come up with its own unique thing so let's move along folks what are you doing what 
Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. Yeah, so we didn't really do traditional recommendations in the Psycho episode, and we're not really doing traditional ones now, although I think that we would recommend seeing both of these films. I'd say so, yeah. We're just going to have a general discussion. I know both Barbarian and Pearl have been out for a while by the time we post this episode, but it gives you all a chance to see them if you want to, and... I'm not going to sit here and try to spoil everything, but spoilers might slip out. So if you haven't seen either of these films and you don't want to know a single thing, which I would actually recommend for Barbarian. Absolutely. For sure, yeah. Then go ahead and bid us a fun farewell and we'll talk to you next time. Probably be sometime next week when I get back from my trip. I don't know what day yet. The episodes okay. are just going to come out when they come out. Anyway, for the rest of you who want to hear us talk about Barbarian and Pearl, that's what we're going to talk about for recommendations. Let's actually start with Barbarian, even though we saw that more recently, because that came out before Pearl, I think. Okay. Yeah, totally wild ride. You had said to me that you heard that the best way to go into it was knowing nothing. Successful. I knew absolutely nothing. I had seen one trailer and i still didn't really know anything yeah. it's impossible to tell from that trailer what's coming yeah and it's just <laughs> if you think you know where it's heading you don't no it's a film that is definitely a horror film it does a great job of misleading you as to thinking you know where it's going right. and it keeps tricking you keeps you on your toes several times throughout the film it does an abrupt reset yeah and you're caught off guard. You don't know what's going on. You have to refigure out what's happening. It's really intense, really well done. and A lot of humor in it too, though. Yeah, it's funny. It's creepy. There's good jump scares. There's good tension. And I found myself cackling a lot, laughing throughout oh, yeah. the film. I was endlessly entertained from start to finish. Yeah, I was laughing from not only the humor, but also just as a relief as like a coping mechanism oh, yeah. with just how crazy and insane it was but it's creepy too and there are good jump scares yeah i would recommend checking it out like i said you know we're not really gonna dive into spoilers i guess with especially with this film maybe more with pearl yeah. because it's not really the same thing but yeah i haven't seen a ton of mind-blowing things this year so this is right up there with one of my favorites of the year so far for sure it's really inventive and creative, and it didn't feel like something I had seen before. Absolutely. Totally a unique experience. So Pearl is a prequel to the film X, a film that we both liked that came out back in March, I think. Definitely. Ty West and Mia Goth formed some sort of a creative partnership here, and it seems like Goth was a big contributor to the story and producing it and everything. They do this prequel that focuses on a character from X. It's kind of hard to even explain how they're related without completely ruining X. It's but. weird because this was a cool experience, but I'm like, it's interesting as a standalone movie. Yeah, as a standalone movie, it would almost be impossible to explain it. Right. I don't know that it works at all just because it's so weird. The big twist of the movie, in a way, is just the way that it's 
framed and set up and shot. It's shot like a melodrama from yeah. the 50s or it's like something. an old-timey feel. Yeah. If you didn't know what the future held for this character played by Goth, that it would almost seem like a regular family drama, and then it turns more and more sinister as it goes. Although there's a few messed up things that happen throughout it. Definitely. But... I don't really know what to think of it. I know I saw that Scorsese was praising it and <laughs> yeah. said he couldn't even sleep. And I'm like, what? I know. That was not my reaction. I definitely didn't think it was scary. Not at, at all. all. Yeah. In fact, I know that some horrific things happen in it. But even describing it as a horror movie doesn't even seem accurate. I know. I thought it was kind of dry from that standpoint. Like, I thought X, while I also didn't really think was scary, it had a little bit more intensity to it. Yeah. This one is more of a a slow build to yeah. a powder keg. I do think that Goth is great in the film. I did love her monologue, which I had heard a lot about before Same. even seeing the film. Well, I hadn't heard a lot, but I did enjoy it. People were actually trying to start some Oscar buzz on Twitter. <laughs> I think they're dreaming if yeah, they think yeah. that's going to happen. But it's all leading towards what is going to be a sequel to X called Maxine, I guess, which takes place in the 80s which they did a little teaser for yeah, at the yeah. very end of Pearl. Didn't give you much. I think she goes on to become a porn star in Los Angeles or something. I don't know. I will say Pearl is missing the grindhouse feel of X. I agree. The violence ends up, I guess, feeling more shocking in that sense, although you're expecting it, so it's not shocking. But yeah. in the context of what surrounds it in the film, it's shocking, I guess. Right. But there's not really the sex and nudity and grungy Texas Chainsaw Massacre feel to this film. I know. They are definitely going for something completely different. Is Pearl a movie I would find myself watching again? I don't know. I won't be rushing. Yeah, it it really was more of an interesting experiment to go along with yeah. X. I guess this is sounding kind of negative. Like I definitely didn't hate it or anything. I would say I liked it even, but I would put it closer to average. Yeah, I liked Barbarian a lot more. Same. If we were going to compare them directly. But it is cool to have a director like Ty West out there at least trying these weird things. Yeah, I know. He's a cool dude. It may not always be completely successful, but this whole idea of this bizarro trilogy now, I think, is kind of cool and unique. Yeah, I think so. So check out... Barbarian and Pearl, hopefully they'll still be in theaters by the time we post this. If not, then I'm sure they'll be on VOD very soon. As for us, we'll be back next week. The Greatest October rolls along. Thank you so much for listening. Follow the show on Twitter at GreatestPod. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, wherever you find us. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Get the word out there. Yeah, keep checking in, man. Yeah. Keeps us going. Any interaction is like manna from heaven. Absolutely. <laughs> we love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, when we're off mic, I'm a lot like William. <laughs> yeah. And Matt's a lot like Caleb, and he's always asking me if yeah. he's going to heaven. And I'm like, no. <laughs> You're a yeah. sinner. We're like about to be banished from this apartment building. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's had enough of our podcast that's right if you'd like a sticker we'll send that to you for free just reach out to us on twitter and find us on letterbox zach 1983 and 
Matt Crosby. And we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Just a goat. No, it's not 